Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 21. We were there last week and we didn't quite get finished with that chapter. So we'll begin in verse 9 and go through the end of the chapter today. We're talking about heaven, specifically the eternal state. That is what life will be like for believers after the rapture, after the second coming, after the judgments after all the resurrections, after Satan and his demons are cast in the lake of fire that was prepared for them, when heaven and earth will pass away and God will recreate the universe, this time without sin or any conflict or any consequence of sin. Last week we saw that it will indeed be new heaven and a new earth, free of sin and sin's curse. There's a new relationship because no longer will there be any gulf of divide between us and our Savior. We'll see him face to face. We'll have these glorified bodies fit for heaven. We'll have a new reality. The Bible says there'll be no more pain or suffering or death, no more tears in heaven. And then the capital city of that new earth will be what's called the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the home where Jesus went to prepare for us. Come down, the scripture says, as a bride adorned for her husband, that husband being the Lord Jesus, the bride being the church, the redeemed for all time. And so, through the end of chapter 21, now beginning verse 9, we have some incredible details about that heavenly city given to the Apostle John, and he was instructed to write them down for our benefit, and we have them now known as the book of Revelation. So let's begin verse 9, chapter 21, Revelation. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues said, Come up and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates were 12 angels, and their names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sargis, and seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jainseth, and twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. 
And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb were its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon or the shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and the lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will, be, will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Now I want us to draw attention to three observations about this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven adorned as a bride. Number one, we see the beauty of the heavenly city. Now most of us at one time or another in our travels have marveled at the beauty of the earth as it now exists. If you've ever driven up and down the Pacific Highway out in California, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and stood at the base of the Grand Tetons or my favorite national park, Glacier National Park in Montana, you have been in awe of the sheer beauty of the glory of God's creation. And as beautiful as this earth is now, we are looking for an earth that will be better. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans, there's coming a new creation and the earth moans and groans awaiting this new creation because the earth is under God's curse, according to Genesis chapter 3. And everything that goes wrong in the atmosphere and on and under the earth is a result of that curse. But here in Revelation 29, John sees through this second vision of his what that day of the new creation is going to be like. And amazingly, God gives him a tour guide, one of his angels to take him around. In fact, he took him on a personal tour. Verse 10 says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Now that shouldn't surprise us because many times when God gives a special revelation to his people, he does so in a high place. We see this when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the 10 commandments. We see it when uh, the Lord Jesus took his inner circle disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so God sometimes will meet with his people on a mountain and he showed John the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. Now in that verse, we see a number of words used to describe this heavenly city. Number one, it's said to be holy. Now the word holy technically means distinct or different or separate. But in this case, it means sinless because we've learned so far that nothing sinful, no stain of sin will ever be allowed into that heavenly city. It's a city that is from God, John says. We saw last week that the architect and the city planner and the general contractor of the heavenly city is God himself. So we know it's going to be of high quality. And it has God's glory within it. Now God's glory can be described as his manifest presence. That is God showing up in some physical way. And we know God is spirit. But every now and then he shows up in some physical way that we can see with our eyes. We see this in the Old Testament when God spoke through his manifest presence to Moses when he called him to let his people go through the burning bush. And then after the 10 plagues, as Moses led the people out through the wilderness, he identified with Moses through a pillar of fire and he spoke and communicated that way. And of course, the most perfect way we see the manifest presence of God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only in his life, but even in death through his risen glorified state, he met with Saul on the road to Damascus and struck him down with blindness and called him to be his apostle. 
But in every case, we see the manifest presence of God in the Bible. The glory of God is brilliant white light, and it is at least partially veiled. Here's what I mean by that. When God met with Moses on the mountain, Moses wanted to see God. He didn't know what he was asking for. So God placed him in the cleft of the rock to protect him from himself. And he caused himself to pass by and Moses saw as it were the hinder parts of God. That means he got just a little infinitesimal glimpse of God's true glory. And that was enough to make his face glow for weeks. The apostle Paul saw the risen Lord Jesus and just a taste of his glory, it struck him blind. And so God is very gracious not to let us see his fully or glory in these non-resurrected bodies because they were not made for that. And we would uh, die instantly, I think, if, if we did. But the Bible teaches that we are going to receive glorified bodies at the second coming. Bodies like Christ, which are fit for heaven and eternity, bodies that don't wear out, and bodies that have the capability of seeing Christ and his glory face to face. Now, John was one of those disciples who got a little taste of that glory up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And remember what he said in his gospel, we have seen his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father. Now later on in another one of his epistles, John wrote this, beloved, he's speaking to Christians, we are God's children now. That is, we don't have to wait to have resurrected bodies to refer to ourselves as God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but he says, we're not what we will be. But we know that when he appears, that is as his second coming, we shall be like him, that is in those glorified bodies, because we shall see him as he is. We'll have the ability to see Christ as he truly is without any veil, without any gulf of separation. And when we see the glory of God in that heavenly city, once again, it's represented in brilliant light. It shines throughout every square inch of that heavenly city and it shows forth all around it. It says her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, when you think of the word jasper, that's the word we don't use unless it's a nickname for someone. Uh, jasper means diamond. And it's the, the most precious and the hardest and the most valuable of gems. Um, I told you last week that Melissa and I were having a wedding anniversary this past week. And, uh, but before we got married, we got engaged. And that engagement commenced when I gave her a diamond ring. Now, I put that in air quotes because it was very small, because after all, I was a seminary student. Uh, even though it was a little bitty diamond, it was a diamond nonetheless. And I did some research about diamonds because I knew absolutely nothing about them. And I discovered there are four words that begin with C that tell you how to value a diamond. Number one is cut, how many facets it has on it, its color. It's a uh, carat weight gives value to a diamond. But probably the most important component of a value of a diamond is its clarity. That is, does it have irregularities and scratches on it um, that would diminish its value? Well, he's speaking here of the heavenly city coming down as one great diamond, multifaceted, beautiful in color, immeasurable in its carat weight and its clarity is pristine. It's translucent beauty through which the glory of God, that bright light shows forth into all the universe, seems to be the most obvious characteristic that catches John's attention. It is clear and the light of God's glory penetrates throughout. That's why verse 22 says we'll have no need of the sun or the moon 
It says, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God is illumining it. And its lamp is the Lamb. God the Father, God the Son, with no veil to hide their glory, are as bright as the sun, and there's no need of a separate sun or moon. Now, that's something that's hard for us to comprehend and understand, but the Bible says it's true. In fact, we see the incredible value of the city in its building materials. Look at verse 18. The material of the wall was jasper. That is, they made the wall out of a diamond, one great diamond. Now, as I thought about this week, I wonder what that would cost. Because uh, we voted a few months ago to build a couple of buildings out on our north lot here. And uh, they're pretty simple buildings. But one of the things that we are monitoring very closely in our building committee is the cost of materials. And what we find is they're very high right now, like everything else is. And so you pray that material costs will go down between now and when we start work on these buildings. But God didn't worry about the cost of materials, apparently, when he built the heavenly city. He began with, with diamonds. And the material of the wall was jasper or diamond, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city were all adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald. On and on it goes, listing precious metal and precious jewel after another. And so no expense is spared. Well, why not? Because God owns everything, right? And he creates it, and so it, it's no burden to him. I sort of feel sorry for John as I was reading this description of the heavenly city because John is a man and he's trying to describe something that no one else had ever seen. And uh, he, he's limited like we are by our own vocabulary. How do you describe something to another person that neither of you have ever seen before? Well, you do your best, don't you? And God guided John, John's mind and his lips. I, I think... What he was doing, though, is writing this down so we'll want to go there. <laughs> Do you find yourself, as we talk about heaven more week by week, wanting to go there? I, I hope you do. Um, but he had the task of describing what eye has not seen and ear had not heard. And, and what we know is that this heavenly city is fundamentally different and superior to anything here on earth. He does not give us enough clarity that we know about it perfectly, but just enough to make us want to go there. Now, our uh, forefathers used to sing a lot more about heaven than we do. And calm down, I'm not singing again this week. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, that's right, yeah, <laughs> terrible. Um, but I remember one of, the, one of the little songs about heaven we used to sing in the old Stamps Baxter book. Some of you are from the country, you remember Stamps Baxter. Um, it was not as sophisticated as the Baptist hymnal. And one of the songs in the Stamps Baxter was a, a little cabin in the, in the corner of glory land. And the idea was this person, obviously, who grew up in the mountains. And their idea of heaven was having a little cozy cabin somewhere away from the crowds. And, and look, when we think about heaven, don't, don't think about that. I know we can use our sanctified imagination. And what we end up with is something that's far inferior to what God has for us. And that guy, he's probably like me, he grew up in the country and his, his most precious memories of life were in that little cabin he grew up in around his family, around the hearth and sharing meals together. And that's his idea of heaven. But heaven, as we said a couple of weeks ago, is not doing what you like to do here without consequence. Heaven is different 
in every aspect than anything we know here. And let me hasten to add, not only is it different, it's different in a good way. It is superior to anything that we can imagine here. I think that's why God gave the prohibition in Exodus chapter 20 in the second commandment of making no graven image. Because we like to use our sanctified imagination and imagine what God looks like. And then artists have tried to translate that into sculpture and painting, and God forbids that, I think, because whatever they create, no matter how masterful the artist, by necessity, it's going to be less than. And so let's just wait for heaven to see for ourselves and with our own eyes. But God is gracious to let John give us a little bit of taste of what it's going to be like here in Revelation 21. So we've seen the beauty of heaven. And then secondly, let's see the perfection of the heavenly city. Now we humans, Genesis tells us, are made in the image of God. We, we don't know yet the full implication of that. We preacher types and theologian types like to debate what does it mean that we're made in the image of God. I think there's some things that are obviously true. God has enabled us to think at a higher level than the animals. We can use logic. He's enabled us to understand how he works through physics and chemistry and things like that. We have an eternal soul as well as a body. That makes us different than the animals. But I think surely one of the things that it means to be made in the image of God is that we have the, the ability like he does to discern what is beautiful, to appreciate beauty. Now, I've never seen an elephant or rhinoceros in a museum appreciating fine art, have you? But, but human beings have that ability. Um, and one of the things that makes things beautiful is its symmetry. If you've taken any art class at all, you know they talk a lot about symmetry. Now you look at Greek architecture, for example. It's, it's usually uh, using 90 degrees. It has the same number of pillars around every side. And it, it has beauty. We're attracted to it because of its symmetry. And heaven and the heavenly city are symmetrical. Now sociologists and biologists tell us that's one way God has made us attractive to one another so that we can reproduce. We are attracted to symmetry in another person. Well, the heavenly city is perfectly symmetrical. Look at verse 12. It, that is the city, has a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel. Now God chose Abraham through him. All the nations of the world would be blessed. God through Christ chose these 12 apostles and they will be honored throughout eternity by having their names written on these gates. There were three gates in the east and three gates on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And the wall of that city had 12 foundation stones and on them the 12 names of the apostles of, of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city. That's the angel. And its gate and its walls and the city is laid out as a square. Now, I made a C minus in geometry, but I know what a square is. It has four equal sides and four 90 degree angles, right? Perfectly symmetrical. And really it's a cube because he says, verse 16, the city is laid as a square and its length is as great as its width and is measured the city with a rod 1500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to the human measurements which are also angelic measurements. Now, let's just walk through this description. Let's go from back to front. So 72 yards wide are the walls. And these walls are not to mean, meant to keep enemies out. In the ancient world, that's why they had walled cities, 
So the people who lived outside the walls could come in, they could shut and lock the doors, and they could be preserved against any attacks. Well, there's no one going to be left to attack. It's all brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why he says they don't ever close the gates. There's no need to, not even at night. It's, it's like we reminisce some of us about our childhood where we didn't have to lock our doors or windows at night. We won't have to lock the doors of the heavenly city. And there are 12 gates because we'll be able to go in and out. See, even as, as large as the heavenly city is, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, a perfect cube, which if you do the calculations on that is amazingly large. And that's why a lot of people who've read this say, well, this can't be literal. This must be some metaphor. We can't take this city being literally that large because no city could ever be that large. Well, I think that's what God had in mind when he had that angel hold that gold measuring rod. And John said, it's the same measuring units as we have here on earth. He was saying, take this literally. This is a literal place, a literal dimension. And, and so it's large. And don't worry about heaven being too small. It's plenty big. And not only that, there's a world outside of it that we can go out and in and interact with. Twelve foundation stones, as I said, named for the twelve apostles. Um, we will be able, I believe, now be careful when your pastor says, I think or I believe. But taking into account what we read earlier that John says we're going to have bodies like Christ. What was Christ's body like? It was not confined to time and space. Remember after his resurrection, he's on the road to Emmaus talking with those two brothers. And as soon as they recognized him, he was gone and found himself in Jerusalem. And Jesus could go through walls. And, and so I take it we're going to have bodies like that. And so when you think about that city, 1,500 miles in all directions, we'll, we'll be able to go up and down and sideways. It's just mind-boggling to think about how wonderful it, it will be. That is, we're not going to be confined to gravity and the laws of physics as we are here. And again, unless you think this is all a, a dream or a metaphor, he says, no, it's not. It's the same measuring units we have here on earth. How beautiful and how perfect heaven will be. But now thirdly, we come to the fact that heaven is not only beautiful and perfect, heaven is theocentric. I said this when we were looking at the throne room of God back three weeks ago. What is at the very center of heaven? It's the throne of God where he abides. He is the star of heaven. And so let's look thirdly at the source of the heavenly city. Now John begins and ends his description of heaven with the glory of God. He comes back to that theme over and again, the glory of God, the glory of God, which as I said is represented by magnificent light. Now listen to this description of that light in verse 24. He says, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, that is all the time, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now I admit, these few verses are a bit perplexing. He talks about kings and kingdoms and, and nations and um, the chapters preceding tell us that there's going to be one great and final battle in which all the enemies of the Lord are going to be defeated and, and that's so. So who are these nations? Well that word nation comes from a Greek word that literally means ethnos. It means people groups. 
And the scripture says, we're going to study next week, because I've got one more sermon. I planned to finish this week, but I didn't. So next week we're going to talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I take the Lord's Supper as a dress rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, the Lord is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And we're finally going to come together and be together for all of eternity. And of course there's going to be food And the scripture says there's going to be people that will come from east and west and north and south, from every tribe and tongue and ethnos, nation, people group, and sit down at the marriage supper. This is what he's talking about, I'm convinced. It's not that there are going to be armies and political boundaries in heaven. It's that everything we knew before is going to be changed. All the glorious empires and kingdoms are going to come into the city. That is their glory, which we thought was magnificent here on earth, is going to be swallowed up in the magnificent glory of God. They're going to be a footnote and not even that. They're not to be remembered anymore. And all the nations of the world will come together. Here's what I think that means. You think about how our world is ordered today. It's divided, isn't it? Our country is divided like no other time in my lifetime divided by political affiliations. It's divided by racial conflict. I think one of the greatest conflicts we're facing today in our world is socioeconomic. The haves and the have-nots despise each other, it seems like. Brothers, that ought not to be in the church, right? There's no place for racial conflict in the church or dividing people by how much money they have or how much education they have. James warned against that in his epistle. He says, if a rich man comes into your congregation, don't tell him to sit at the place of honor and tell the poor person to sit on the floor. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no place for those things because what do we do here? We're getting ready for heaven where there'll be none of that. And I think what it means that the nations will come into the glory of heaven is that all of those differences and animosities and grudges and bitterness based on those ways we divide one another up will be wiped away. And we'll just see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that will be heaven indeed. Everyone will be equal before the Lord. Now, it's a place of sinless perfection. Nothing will ever mar it or stain it. It's the home of the redeemed for all time. Look what he says, verse 27. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, what in the world is the Lamb's Book of Life? Well, the Scripture says that at the judgment... The books, plural, are going to be open. And the books contain the deeds and the thoughts and the words of all humans for all time. And the lost folks are going to be judged based upon those deeds. And he's going to open a book, singular, called the Lamb's Book of Life. And whoever's name is not found in the Lamb's Book of Life is going to be cast into the lake of fire, which was meant for Satan and his demons. So... That means to have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life is the same thing as being born again, being saved, we would say. So when we are saved, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The old preachers used to say with indelible ink, never to be wiped away. And what a glorious thing it will be when the book is open and your name is read out loud. What did Jesus say to his apostles during his lifetime, don't rejoice over anything on earth except this, that your name's written in the Lamb Book of Life. That is the most important thing that could be said of anyone in this room. 
Not how much money you have, not how much land you own, not how smart you are, what your IQ is. The greatest thing can be ever said of us is our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if it's not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, nothing else has any importance at all. Because the scripture says, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So what about you? Are you saved? Are you born again? Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Say, Pastor, I don't know. Well, you can know. See, if you're trusting in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation and faith in his righteousness, your name's not written in the book of life. But if you're trusting in Christ alone, if there's come a time in where your life where you recognize God's assessment of you is true, you do fall short of his glory. You are unworthy of his heaven. And the Holy Spirit convicts you of three things. Your personal sin and guilt. God's perfect holy righteousness and the judgment that is to come. And you go down in your soul before him in humility and contrition and say with the tax collector, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. That's the person whose sins are forgiven, who goes down to their house justified. What about you today? Have you bowed your knee to the glory of Jesus Christ? One day, every person Every angel, every demon will bow their knee. But if you bow your knee in this life, the result is you'll spend eternity in glory with Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you've never done so, today is the day of salvation. Give up on earning heaven on your own. You'll always fall short. Trust what Christ has already done. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has fulfilled the law in every way. And God the Father is pleased with his sacrifice as evidenced by the empty tomb. Believe the words of the Apostle Paul that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there is heaven awaiting us. And Lord, it's not a metaphor. It's not pie in the sky by and by. It is a prophecy which is sealed by the good name of God himself. He said to John, write, for these things are faithful and true. And Father, if there's one thing we know about you, all your prophecies, all your promises are yes and amen. They either have happened or they will happen. You never lie. And so, Father, we take these things literally, that you have prepared a literal place for us. And one day, when everything is through, after the rapture, after the resurrection, after the judgments, after the world as we know it is burned up with fervent heat, there is a new heaven and a new earth awaiting. And Father, we look forward to that day. We look forward to celebrating the consummation of human history at the marriage supper of the Lamb as we'll study next week. So Father, bring us back next week ready to take of the Lord's Supper. Put our hearts and minds, as Paul said to the Colossian church, on the things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Lord, if there's even one here today who knows you not, Lord, would you draw them by your spirit and grant faith and repentance and boldness not to be ashamed of the gospel, to profess you publicly here today and follow through believer's baptism. Father, I pray if there's a Christian here today who's grown weary and tired, help them to keep in the fight knowing that heaven awaits. Encourage our heart today from your word in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. 
Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org. Thank you.